Worship, watch, warn the revelation of Jesus Christ. The big idea for this, as we are in part two, we did the first four churches last week. I must serve God faithfully and passionately. Uh, The word that was suggested was zealously, but that's not a word used much. And so I changed it to passionately, with zeal, with zest, with gumption. I must serve God. And that's where we're going to be today. There's a famous verse in this chapter that I'll point out, and that verse is this. Jesus saying, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Again, I want to point out the bigger picture of relationship. That's what's offered in this verse, relationship. And again, we we talked about this when we were talking about how to translate Scripture and do it well, that this verse is used for outreach, that Christ wants lost people to welcome him in. And while that's true, this verse specifically is for us as believers. This is written to the church, and the the verse for Laodicea, the church in Laodicea, lets them know that if they were to repent, get rid of their sinfulness, that there's a relationship for them. I hope you understand that today. In our, in our walk with Christ, if there's sin in our lives, then there's a barrier. There's something between us and God. And to remove that, you must remove the sin that's in your life to have a freedom of this wonderful relationship. How many of you remember growing up and as a teenager, you disappointed your parents? Anybody admit that right now? You disappointed your parents. Only, we only have about 25% rebel kids. Good. Uh, we all probably disappointed our parents from one time or another. You know what I hate most about that? I hate most that feeling, that feeling of tension, that feeling of broken relationship, it's just not comfortable. Quite often in a marriage relationship, when I'm talking to a couple sitting on the couch in front of me and they're having problems, I'll often say, hey, listen, there might have been something that was wrong. Somebody did something wrong, but we need to move past that. We need to get forgiveness of that, and we need to admit that it was wrong, but then we got to move on from there because nobody likes to stay in a relationship where you're the skunk all the time. I mean, how, how long will you stay in a relationship when you just are always reminded you're the skunk, you're the rotten, dirty bird, uh, and, and you're the reason why uh, we can't have peace? And no, you can't live in that. You just can't live that way. In order to have relationship, there needs to be forgiveness and a relationship made right. I was talking to Janella's service this week. We sat down to prepare for Pastor Bob's memorial, the, the, the celebration of life we're going to have on Saturday, June 5th. And uh, what a joy to talk with Janella. But she was telling me that uh, recently she got woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Somebody was ringing the doorbell. 3 o'clock in the morning. I thought, oh my goodness, Janella, you're out there by yourself in the country. Somebody's at your door. 3 in the morning. I said, you didn't go, did you? How many of you have ever been in the house and somebody knocked on the door or rang the doorbell and you just pretended like you weren't there? Anybody ever do that? Let's just do all the confession in the world today. We ever, yeah, you ever do that? Oh man, I used to have to do that in Battle Creek all the time. I was, I, I used to run around the house in underwear all the time. That's how I would run around the house. And it's a terrible feeling when you're running around the house in your underwear and somebody knocks at the door. It's like, oh no. <laughs> You don't want to get caught. Pastor doesn't want to get caught uh, with that visual, right? You you don't want somebody from the church having that memory, all right? It's hard to preach when you're thinking about bad past, right? And so here I'm talking to Janella, and she had this doorbell going off three in the morning. She said, yeah, I did. But I stopped at the hallway, and I peeked first. I didn't see anybody. She's got a a, a door, but the side lights, so you can kind of see, you know, somebody there. She didn't see anybody. So she got in the middle of the hallway and walked right down the middle, 
right? Right, so the door was blocking her, and then she kind of peeked out side light, didn't see anybody. She peeked out the other side light, didn't see anybody. And then she actually opened the door. I'm like, Janelle, you opened your door at three in the morning? She said, yeah, I wanted to check. She opened the door, and she looked out to see who was on the porch. Turns out she had a faulty ringer on her doorbell button. It was broke, and it was just going off. And so nobody was there. But have you ever had that kind of a moment? Well, let me tell you this morning as we get into Revelation 3, as we look at this verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. How are you responding to Christ today? Are you running and hiding in shame in your underwear? Are you, kinda, are you, are you living your Christian life embarrassed? I mean, Adam and Eve did that, remember? They, they put on their little, little loincloths, and then when Jesus came looking, they went and hid. Are you in hiding from Jesus He's knocking. He wants to be let in and, and have a relationship. One that's free from shame and guilt. And so we're going to walk through our churches today, talk through those things. Uh, I want to start with answering the question that was given this week. Remember, my offer is here for you. If you have questions about Revelation or end time issues, you can email pd at oakwoodcc.org, and I will respond to those. I'll respond on email, but if it's a question I think the whole congregation would like, I'll bring it up. We had a great question this week. The question was simply, wait a second. We're talking about seven churches in this area of the world Seven churches that seem to be doing some good things, live and thriving. How come today there's hardly any Christian representation in that part of the world? This is this part of the world, and you know it's the area of Turkey, Asia Minor. And we know that there's less than 1% of the population of Turkey claims to be Christian. And so the question was asked, what happened? Where did the churches go? Where did the Christians go? And I thought it was a wonderful question today. I'm not going to be able to answer it in detail, but I'm going to give you one little speck this morning to know. Most recently, the decline in Christianity in Turkey is due to a genocide wiping out most of the Christians. Between 1894 and 1924, the number of Christians in Asia Minor fell from some 3 to 4 million to just tens of thousands, from 20% of the area's population to under 2%. Turkey has long attributed this decline to wars and the general chaos of the period, which claim many Muslims' life as, as well. But the descendants of Turkey's Christians, many of them dispersed around the world since the 1920s, maintain that the Turks murdered about half of their forebears and expelled the rest. So what am I telling you? In early, uh, in 1894 through 1924, there was a genocide that wiped out most of the Christians. The Ottoman Turks just simply murdered them or they ran in, in exile to get away from that. Here's why I find it interesting and, and the question interesting this past week. Because on April 20th, this year, President Biden signed a statement regarding this fact that happened. And this is important. Listen to what he said. Each year on this day, April 20th, we remember the lives of those who died in the Ottoman era Armenian genocide and recommit ourselves to preventing such an atrocity from ever again occurring. Let us renew our shared resolve to prevent future atrocities from occurring anywhere in the world. And let us pursue healing and reconciliation for all the people of the world. The American people honor all those Arminians who perished in the genocide that began 106 years ago today. That statement was just put out a week and a half ago. 
the Turkish government was not happy and is still not happy. Our relationship is strained because America decided it was time to say, you wiped out Christians. They didn't say that, of course, as their government. But you wiped out the Armenians. And what that is, the Armenian Christians. And they're saying that we're looking back on history and we're calling it what it was. And that Turkish government is not happy with this action and still denies that there was a genocide to wipe them out. That's just part of the answer. I'm sure it's not all of the answer. If you happen to know anybody who lives in Turkey that's a Christian, you might reach out to them and ask that very question. You might get a wonderful, more complete answer than I'm giving you today. Uh, but that's part of the answer. So we've got these seven churches in the area that is Turkey. You can see that today, Sardis, Ephesus, Colossae, uh, Pergamon, all, all these are ruins. All these with a the little triangle, three, three dots, are all ruins. And you, if you travel there, you can actually see where these churches, where these cities were that we're talking about. On to our talk today. Let's move to Revelation chapter 3, Sardis. By way of learning today, I'm going to give you a background of each of these cities and each of these churches because I want to remind you that as Jesus talks to them, he talks specifically to them. And there's going to be hints about why he uses certain analogies based on the geography. Remember last week, if you lived in Battle Creek and and Jesus were to come, he'd say, boy, you smell like Fruit Loops because the town would understand that. The town is very aware. If if, if we were in Detroit, uh, I want to talk about your drive, that you are a 12 cylinder sports car you know and that's how he would be making the reference and so I'm each of these churches I'm going to give you a little bit and I want you to listen carefully today as I tell you about the city and then listen to the comments and see if you can see a connection and then I'll point those out as we go Sardis Sardis is one of the more illustrious cities and was located 40 miles southeast of Thyatira and 45 miles east of Smyrna It was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia and the seat of the famous and wealthy Croesus. This wealth was based on the gold found in the river Pactolus, which flowed through the middle of the city and on its famous woven textiles. The prosperity of Sardis resulted in part from its location on a number of important trade routes and its position as the terminus of the royal road. Its population, we believe, was somewhere between 60 and 100,000 people. Again, a decent-sized city. So let's read what Jesus had to say to his church in Sardis. Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write. I'll let that catch up. There we go. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's walk through it quickly today. 
that always starts with the description of Christ. And here Christ is known as the enabler and director. When you hear the word enabler, don't go negative on me. We all know that enablers today, we have a negative connotation for that. But you need to know that Christ enables his church. He's the one that enables us to have power, to be effective. That's our goal is to be effective. He enables us to do that. So in a positive way, I'm using the word enabler today. We need Jesus to do it. Without Jesus, we have no power. How is that seen? It's, he's the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. Uh, the seven spirits, again, is a reference of completion about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, is the power for the church. He's the director. He holds the seven stars. The, the, uh, we're talking about the churches and the, the pastors and their ministries. He is the director of all that ministry. What's the diagnosis? There's a commendation and complaint found here. The Sardis church was commended. They were recognized. There's recognition of a worthy remnant. In this passage, it says, there are, there are some. There are some. I'm trying to find it. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So there's a worthy remnant at this church that's doing right. I want you to know two things about that. Eyeballs here for a second. Jesus talks to the church. We are a corporate being. This church, Oakwood, we're a family, and we will be judged as the family at Oakwood, but the family is made up of individuals, and so you also too will be looked at. Are you being faithful in the body of Christ here at Oakwood? Are you serving? Are you, are you honoring Christ? Are you living a worthy life? Are you staying unspotted from the world? It's both individual and corporate. In our world today, the corporate pretty much has been removed, and it's all about the individual. That's why we're concerned that people would come back after the coronavirus. We call an end to it. People come back. The church needs you here, and you need to be here. Yes, Christianity is both individual, but it's also corporate. So Jesus is talking to the church, but he notices in the church there are individuals. There's a group of people who are being worthy. He talks about them being robed in righteousness. Do we have 2 Corinthians 5, 21? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You got to get this right, eyeballs here, church. Throughout Revelation uh, three, uh, 2 and 3, quite often it's talked about a white robe or white clothing. It's very important that you understand the analogy here. That white robe refers to the righteousness of Christ that becomes yours the moment you are saved. And this is so tricky for you to understand today. Try to wrap your mind around this. The moment you accept Christ into your life and say, God, please forgive me of my sin, come into my life as Savior and Lord, the moment that happens in your life, you're given this white robe. In other words, you are presented as pure before God. That's an amazing thing. Some of you all know your past, and you know that you're not perfect and pure, but yet you've been given this robe and declared perfect and pure. At the same time, they're instructed to put on the new garment of a holy lifestyle. Colossians 3, 10 through 14. And to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love. Everybody say love. Which binds them all together in perfect unity. Eyeballs here. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior, you're given that white robe. You have a position. You are a a, a saved individual. That that garment that you have is because of Christ's righteousness, but now it's yours. But then you're also told to clothe yourself with righteousness. Wait, PD, I've already been given this robe. I'm done. I'm good. It's already been given to me. You're already telling me that I'm going to show up before God someday, and I got on the robe. I'm good. Well, there's, there's two components. Put on that robe that Christ gave you, his righteousness given to you at the cross. He took all of your sinfulness. You get this beautiful white robe, and then it tells you to also clothe yourself every day. Live worthy of the calling. You need to put on forgiveness and love and forbearance. You need to put on unselfishness and you need to put on living right that's a choice you make daily here's the hard thing as a pastor it would be so easy if i said you you're messing it up christ gave you that beautiful white robe and now you got something all over it man you spilled ketchup all over yourself you got coffee over here oh you're making a mess out of christ it would be easy for me to preach that it would be easy for preachers then to say if you don't shape up and keep that robe clean we're going to take that robe away from you But here's the honest truth. It's not going to be taken from you. You've been asked to clothe yourself with righteousness. But what Christ did at the cross, that is yours. You're going to see as Christ talks to the church, he talks about that book of life, and he promises not to blot out your name. You're saying, PD, but I messed it up. I I know, we do, don't we? None of us live up to that perfect robe of righteousness that Christ gives us at salvation. We don't live up to it. That's why grace and mercy are so important. But it's a high calling, isn't it? And that's what Christ called this church to do. Not only be robed in in the righteousness of Christ, but then to live a holy lifestyle, unspotted from the world. James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, spotted by the world, stained with sinfulness. So you've got a position. Are you living up to that position in your life? Without a threat. I'm not threatening you're going to lose it today. And you're saying, well, preacher, that ain't going to preach because I'm just going to live however I want to live. If I already got the white robe, why would I want to live any? Well, you deal with that. Listen to Christ talk to his church. Listen how he feels about purity not being spotted by the things of this world. And you determine. Uh, I think this is one of those semantics things. If you're truly saved, clothed in righteousness, the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, it's very hard to live a life where you don't care, that it doesn't matter. If you're truly saved, the Holy Spirit won't let you walk continually in sin. I often tell my son, Christian kids get busted all the time. If you think you can get away with it as a Christian kid, you got something going against you, the Holy Spirit. You're just going to get caught. Christian kids get caught. I think they're just terrible at sin. They get busted. Why? I think the Holy Spirit's chasing them, not letting them always get away with it. 
if they are, and if you're living a life where your life doesn't matter and sin doesn't matter, righteousness doesn't matter, then maybe truly you haven't received this wonderful gift because that gift will change you. It'll change you from the inside out. What are the complaints for Sardis? Well, they're, they're hypocritical in their reputation. They're known for being quite a church. They're wealthy and they're, they have a reputation, but Christ looks at them and says, you're dead. Other churches look and say, oh, I wish I could be that church. But Christ looked at the church and he said, no, no, you're, you're dead. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 5, do we have those? I don't know if I gave you those, so we won't worry about those. 2 Timothy 3, 5, Luke nine sixty. look those up on your own, about saying one thing but doing another thing. Claiming to be something, but in actuality, it's not true. Actually, what was happening is the church was deteriorating. This church is in the ICU unit. One of the things that I've been scared about over these last few months, I shouldn't say the word scared, one of the things that worried me was when I'd get word that somebody went to the hospital and they're currently in the ICU, intensive care unit. Oh no, oh no. Your heart kind of stops and you worry. Are they going to be okay? This church is on life support. Jesus tells them that. You think you're something, but really you're dead. Well, not all the way dead. Mostly dead. Have you watched Princess Bride? You know what I'm talking about. And Jesus is the only one that has the, the, the breath of life. And he's like, he, you know, are you there? Are you there, church? This church was deteriorating. It was dying. And the Bible says their works were not perfect. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about that. What he, Jesus was saying to this church is, you start a lot of good things, but there's no completion. You don't follow through. You're not being effective. They started, but they didn't finish their goals. That's what Jesus said to the church. Now there's some prescriptions for Sardis. How can they get this right? Number one, they need to be watchful. Two, strengthen themselves. Three, remember. Four, hold fast. And then repent. That is what Christ says to his church in Sardis. They're on life support. And Christ says in order to be brought back to life, these things need to be put into place. 1 Peter 4, 7 and then 5, 8. 4, 7 says the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, sober-minded that you may pray. And then verse, chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The church in Sardis was about ready to be devoured by Satan. They're dead. They're on life support. And Christ told them, these are the important things. Be alert, be awake, wake up, church. Sardis is the sleeping church. And then the promises. God promises righteousness, assurance, relationship. Did anybody see the connection when I told you about Sardis? What was Sardis one of the things they were known for? Anybody? Textiles. They made wool. They made woven clothes. Don't you see how it's interesting how Jesus used clothing as the big illustration here? A white garment, not spotted, unblemished, right? Uh, how many of you have clothes and you hate it when they, they, they get a stain in them? I, I don't know what happened, but a couple weeks ago, I pulled out one of my white t-shirts and it was pink. Pink. I mean, totally pink. I told Julia, I said, what happened? She said, I don't remember washing anything with that. How did it get pink? Well, we'd washed it obviously with something and it turned it pink. I still have that shirt. I'm hopeful but I haven't been wearing it. <laughs> it's off to the side. Well, right now, Sardis is kind of off to the side. They got to make up their mind. Are they going to follow Christ or not? So what's the word for Sardis? They're dead, 
but revivable. Let's move on to Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. The descriptions for the church here is holy, true, authorized, and sovereign. Let's read it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? This is Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have denied, not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, remember those, we talked about those in the past, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, they are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write my name on them, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what about Philadelphia? Let me tell you a little bit about it. It's located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis and 60 miles east of Smyrna at the foot of the Timolus Mountains. Heavily dependent on vineyards because of a rich volcanic soil, the city would have been radically affected had Domitian's edict of AD 92 ordered that half of the vineyards in the province be shut down and closed. It was subject to earthquakes so frequently that new cracks in the city wall appeared daily and few citizens actually lived in the city. Philadelphia is one of 12 cities leveled after the devastating earthquake of AD 17. Two things about Philadelphia. Earthquakes shake and things fall down. Uh, Number two, um, it was their vineyards. Uh, Rich volcanic soil, the grapes would grow, was known for that, and yet this evil dictator came along and he closed, he shut them down, he had the power to do it, so he closed down half of the whole industry. So as we walk through this, hear what Jesus uses in that to talk to the churches. He's the Holy One. He's true. He's authorized. He's sovereign. What's the diagnosis? Well, there's a commendation, no complaint. Reminds you of Smyrna. Good old church Smyrna, no complaint. Good old church Philadelphia, no complaint. Just a commendation. The commendation was obedience and faithfulness. They kept God's word and they did not deny him. Jesus says, well done, church. You've been faithful. You've been obedient. It presented them an open door of witness that no one could shut. Apparently, this church had an open door to be bright and salty, to, to proclaim Christ. And I love that. Three times he says, I've given you this open door. No one can shut it. Only I can open and shut it. He's the one who has the keys of David. And so it's an open door. Don't you like that? Because they're a community that is dealing with a shutting a shutdown. They probably feel like we do, right? Tired of the government saying you can't do this, you can't do that. Shutting down jobs, businesses, crashing. And, and these people understand what that's like. The people in authority have the keys, right? They hold the keys and they say you can, you can't. And Jesus comes and says, ah, I hold the keys. And I have opened a door for you, church in Philadelphia. 
You have an open witness. Go tell people about Jesus. That's what's happening here. I love that. And then we have the prescription. There's just an exhortation, no warning, because there's no complaint. So Jesus says for the Philadelphia church, hold fast. Hold fast to that crown, which refers to a crown of righteousness for those who live moral, pure lives, bearing in mind Christ's imminent return. That's what that crown is. And again, don't think gold and and, uh, diamonds. Think the wreath that the runners used to, when they'd finish a race, they would receive this crown, this wreath a perseverance. And so the Philadelphia church is commended, but they're also prescribed to don't quit. Keep going. Don't stop, even though you might be suffering. Keep holding fast. And then the promise is given to them, stability, fellowship, identification. Stability. I will make you a pillar of God. Why? Philadelphia and the earthquakes. All these temples to false gods had those big columns. Guess what happened every time the earthquakes came? They fell. When when Jesus said this to the church, he was telling them, I'm going to make you a pillar in God's house. He was telling them, you're going to endure. It might be shaky times, but you're going to stand tall. Hold fast, church. Don't crumble when the world shakes around you. That's what Jesus says to his church in Philadelphia. I love how he uses those analogies. Are we being like the church in Sardis? Are we being like the church in Philadelphia? How's Oakwood? How are you as part of the body at Oakwood? Are you living up to these standards? The word for Philadelphia is faithful and perseverant. Persevere, church. Then we move on to my favorite, the last of the seven churches, Laodicea or Laodicea. Let uh, Let me give you the background first before I read it this time. The water in Laodicea was extremely hard, but drinkable. It's kind of what I say at my house when the filter goes bad. Yeah, yeah, you can drink it. It's probably not going to kill you today, but you're not going to like it, right? That's the water in Laodicea. It was six miles south of Heropolis, and Heropolis was known for its hot medical mineral springs. They had these hot springs. It was 11 miles uh, west of Colossae. Colossae actually was known as the best, cleanest, purest drinking water. It come out nice and cold. It was so drinkable right out from the ground. That's what they were known for. In uh, 100 miles east of Ephesus on a major road, during the first century AD, there was a medical school in Laodicea where a famous ophthalmologist, Demothetes Philophathetes, that's where he practiced. I think it's exactly how you say it. They produced uh, Phrygian powder, used as an ingredient in eye medication. It was made right there in Laodicea. When destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60, the city was so wealthy it was able to refuse imperial financial assistance in rebuilding. Expensive garments made of black wool were one of its most important exports. You need to know all that. This is my favorite of all the churches because as Jesus wraps it up, he really uses what's happening in their town to illustrate what's happening spiritually in the church. Are you with me? Everybody say yes, PD. Wake up a little bit. Here we go. Verse 14, Revelation 3. Let's hear what the angel of the church to Laodicea writes. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one of the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Once again, that word victorious keeps coming up. That's that Greek word nikao, where you get your Nike shoes from. The swoosh. Nike means victory. Nikao. To the one who overcomes. To the one who is victorious. And yet Laodicea is probably the saddest of all the churches. Good job, Smyrna. No complaint. Good job, Philadelphia. No complaint. Laodicea, no commendation. The description of Christ is he's the amen, the faithful witness, the eternal sovereign. The amen, what's that all about? We say amen when we finish praying. Well, that word amen means so be it, or actually is truth. So whenever you guys uh, say an amen, which would be recommended because pastor likes to hear some feedback every once in a while. If you ever wanted to shout out an amen, what you're actually saying is so be it. That'd be a good one too. If I say something really cool, it'd be awesome if somebody said, so be it. Because what you're actually saying is truth. The teens can get into that. They could be like, truth. And, and that's what's being said by this word amen. It's that, it's that agreement thing. And, and when we finish sometimes a service, we would say something like, and all God's people said, everybody says, amen. Or you should say, so be it. What we heard today, truth. That's what's going on. Jesus is that truth. Jesus is the so be it. He is the faithful witness, eternal sovereign. So what's the diagnosis? Complaint. No commendation. Here's the complaint. Lukewarm. Not effective. I want to make sure you have the right mentality here because for years people have read this and preached, God wants you to be on fire for him. And I understand that sentiment. Even sang the song with Petra. On fire! We talk about Christianity being on fire for God. Well, that's not actually what's being taught. God is actually saying, I wish that you were either hot or cold. You're like, well, that doesn't make a good analogy. Be cool for Christ. I mean, I don't know what you do with that, right? Uh, But the actual analogy that Christ is giving is, I want you to be hot or I want you to be cold. Either one is good. It's the thing in the middle that's gross. Lukewarm. Hot, effective. Everybody say effective. Cold, effective. Everybody say effective. Lukewarm, yeah. Did you hear the explanation here? I I, I just love this. This to me is a masterpiece of writing in Jesus' message. Because Laodicea, six miles from Heropolis, which had beautiful hot springs. Anybody ever been to a hot spring, natural hot springs? Oh, if you go to Colorado, there's a place up in the mountains you can go, and they have different pools, and they're all different temperatures, but each of them come from a different spring right out of the earth at that temperature. They have really cool, uh, not really cool, really hot uh, waters, but then you get to the one, there's one comes right out of the, the mountain at 160 degrees. And there's warning signs. It's like going to, to B-dubs and signing the, the, the thing before you can eat the hot wing, right? This hot tub at 160 degrees is a warning. 
be careful. Don't be pregnant. Don't be alive. Don't breathe. If you're doing any of these things, do not get in this tub. You will bake a lot. And I, immediately I was drawn to that. First thing I did, I wanted to get in a 160 tub. You talk about a thrill. Heropolis was this town, six miles away from a town that had no water. If you ever... Actually, the one time I went to Natural Hot Springs, I was in Colorado, and we'd skied Vail and uh, Flagstaff. We'd, we'd skied two. We were there for a week, and we'd skied back and forth. And when we got to Vail for the first time, we got there at 7.30 in the morning. The parking lot was absolutely empty. And the reason why it was absolutely empty because it was minus 17 degrees that day with a steady wind. Normal people stayed home. But we flew to Colorado to ski, so we went skiing. And we did. We put on all our gear, and I remember skiing 17 degrees below with a wind flying down the mountain. It was awful. It was one of those awful, like you're smiling from ear to ear because it was great skiing, but it hurt. And I remember we skied till about noon, and finally the guy I was with, he was an executive at Kellogg's, he flew me out there with him, paid for everything. He looked at me and said, hey, Don, uh, this is great and all. Can we leave? He said, I want to take you someplace. I'm like, let's go. So we left at noon. He took me to the hot springs. You talk about the best place to be on a cold day, not skiing down the mountain, hot springs. And I remember, man, my, everything in my body after skiing at 17 degrees below, everything hurt. Everything ached. Everything was frozen. Everything was ouch. And I remember getting in that hot water and everything just melted. And that, ah, why? Hot, effective. Say it with me hot, effective. Cool water. Have you ever been out in a hot summer day somewhere or maybe doing some exercise for a long time and you can just, you want that cold water that's good, that is it's clean, it's pure, and it quenches the thirst? Cool, effective. Say it with me. Cool, effective. Do you know what Laodicea did? Laodicea, like many towns, formed a committee. And the committee decided to get water to their town. They needed to build an aqueduct. They had two choices. We can build an aqueduct six miles away from Heropolis and bring that water down to our city, or we can build one 11 miles and bring it to our city. They chose the easier one. Today, you can go and see the ruins in Laodicea of an aqueduct that they built to bring hot spring water so they could have water in their town. Big, big mistake. When you bring hot, effective water for sore muscles with minerals in it that you sit in to relax your muscles, hot, effective, you put it in an aqueduct and let it trickle down for six miles, guess what you get? Lukewarm yuck. Listen, I love hot tubs. I don't drink out of them. I'm not about to take a, 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 a scoop and scoop out of a hot tub with a bunch of people in it and their bodies and such and, and, and put it off to the side and let it cool a little bit. And then, yeah, you got it. That's what my whole point of my message is. Yuck. It's gross. That's literally what this town did. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, Laodicea, I know your works. You're neither hot, effective, or cold, effective. You are yuck. I get a taste of it. It makes me want to spew. I love the work of Christ in that passage. And then he tells them about their faulty valuation. He says, uh, they thought that they were affluent, self-sufficient, but God called them bankrupt. 
Isn't that interesting? Laodicea had so much money that they refused the government's handout when it came time to rebuild their town. Wiped out by an earthquake? We don't want your help. We'll do it ourselves. They were affluent. And so Jesus says to them, you think you're you're self-sufficient? You think you're rich? You say I am rich and I don't need a thing? You are bankrupt spiritually. What is the counsel? Then he tells them, well, you need to receive true spiritual wealth. That's gold refined by fire. You need to receive true spiritual clothing, white clothes to cover sinfulness. Did you hear that one of the things that made them rich is they made, they produced this black wool you couldn't get anywhere else. Isn't that an interesting contrast? All these people wearing this fancy black clothes and Jesus comes in and says, you think you're rich? You think your clothes really fancy? You're naked. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. And he says you need to receive true spiritual vision. Eye medication to restore your spiritual sight. I already told you about Dr. Ophthalmology and the Phrygian powder that they made, that they made an eye salve. They were famous for that all around the region. People with eye issues would come to Laodicea. And he tells them you're blind. What would Christ say to us today? He promised this church... He promised them participation. You will be with me in the end, but you need to repent. You need to get this right. What would Jesus say to us today? Are we lukewarm in need to repent? I know it's been long today, so I'll wrap it up with just this reminder. To the church in Sardis, they're dead, but still revivable. They're on spiritual life support. In Philadelphia, they're faithful and perseverant. No complaint there, but they need to hold on, hold fast. In Laodicea, not effective. I like that that's last, and I like that I can leave that as last because I do think if there's any one of the seven churches that uh, Christ would look at America and say the churches would be, it would be Laodicea, lukewarm. Simply not effective. And that's why your pastor does pray. Whenever I pray, I pray that we would be effective. God, don't let us be lukewarm. God, help us to be either hot effective or cold effective. Help us to be something that makes a difference, not just blah, spiritual blah. Coming out of COVID and before I pray you out this morning, maybe you're feeling spiritual blah. I've heard that. People have written me and said, Pastor, I just feel blah. I just feel like I've been in a fog. I get it. I understand that. Coming from where we've been, that makes sense. But today I want to remind us that Christ would say, lukewarm, disgusting be hot be cold be effective for christ be a witness so people will know about him if you're struggling in your own spiritual walk the best thing you can do is listen to the advice to the churches repent hold fast don't give up remember your first love all the things that christ told these churches are things that you need to hear and oakwood needs to hear to be effective everybody say effective don't you just want to be effective Churches get tired, churches wear out, not from the lack of spiritual stuff, it's the lack of effectiveness from being a spiritual church. Are we being effective? If Oakwood stopped existing this week, the doors were shut, nobody ever came back, and the lights never came on, would it mean anything to the people in Ortonville? Would it make a difference? Would anybody even know We were gone. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you stand with me today?
We usually do the whole song, but uh, today it's late, and uh, I, I told the band not to worry about it. So, the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless. Have a good day.